those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was here and we spoke on uh, the introduction to the book of Hebrews. We, we spent some time in the first three verses where we talked about uh, Christ being God, the image of God, the, the radiance of God's glory. We talked about that. Uh, we talked about him being the one who purified us from our sins, and we talked about uh, him being the one who upholds everything by his powerful word. Sort of a, a glorious introduction to Jesus there. So we talked about uh, Jesus anyway in the introduction to the, the book of Hebrews. What I'd like to do this morning is I would like to take us through a theme in Hebrews which is, which is very um, uh, deep. There's a lot of information on it. Uh, it's the theme of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is described quite a few times in Hebrews as our priest or as our high priest. Uh, and that kind of talk really doesn't occur many other places in Scripture. Hebrews is kind of the place for that. Um, and so putting those verses together, what, what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to fly through several passages and not dig in real deep into each one. We could do a sermon just on each one, but we're going to fly through and we're going to kind of pick out the main points on the priesthood of the Lord Jesus and, um, and put that up there for, for us today and, and get some application from it. So if we could, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews. And we're going to start at Hebrews chapter 2. Now, um, before we get into talking about priests and priesthood and Jesus being our priest, we have to clarify something. Uh, what is a priest? Uh, those of us who've been in, in church uh, for a long time have a concept because we have our, our Bible, of course. Uh, some of us may have a concept uh, from Roman Catholicism. We come out of that, that background and so we're talking about something different here, right? The, the priesthood and the priest idea that we have in Scripture, the, talking about the Lord Jesus, comes from the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have a situation where the nation of Israel has a representative man. Actually, it was a representative class of men who officiated in the tabernacle and then later in the temple uh, on behalf of the people. And the head of that class of men is called the high priest. He's the main priest, the one who is the main representative. What did the high priest do? Uh, the high priest was there as a go-between between the nation and God for a number of things. He would be in the tabernacle or the temple. He would be there to listen to the people, to sympathize with the people, to pray for the people, to offer advice to the people from God's word. He would teach God's word when people came to ask him questions. And he would offer offerings and sacrifices from the people to God on behalf of the nation. Uh, he was kind of a covenant official for the nation. The nation of Israel is in a covenant relationship with God, right? Where there's, there's stipulations and different things. So when the people wanted to relate to God, they would go and talk with this man. And this man would bring them to the presence of God, bring their prayers, their needs, their desires, their sin offerings to, to God, and God would accept the people because of the presence of this individual. Okay, that's kind of how it worked in the Old Testament. Uh, what is happening in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews here is Jesus is being described as the high priest for the Christian. Jesus is being described as that one for us. And the point in Hebrews all the way through the book is that Jesus is better than the priest in the Old Testament. He's better in a number of ways. Okay, So we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, let's start by looking at verse 17. 2.17, we're just jumping right in the middle of a context here. It says this, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. I like that phrase, he had to be 
like his brothers and sisters in every way. Uh, When I look at Jesus coming down, God incarnate, God in flesh, I I often think of the the unnecessity of it. You know, God made the world and the people broke ranks with God and ran away into sin and followed Satan. God didn't need to do something for us. God God is self-sufficient. God has lived before time eternally. God doesn't need the humans. God doesn't need our worship or our love. If the people sin and run away, God didn't need to act. And yet God decides he's going to act. That's called grace. That's called mercy and kindness. But I still think, okay, God could have saved us in a number of different ways. God could have remotely zapped us with salvation from a distant galaxy somewhere. He could have done that, right? God could have dealt with Satan without coming down here. But for some reason in God's mind, God says, I have to do it this way. I'm going to put on skin and I'm going to come down and I'm going to be one of them. The high priest that comes down to help and rescue the people is going to come as one of us. And that's beautiful because high priests in the Old Testament were were humans, weren't they? They were humans who were like the other people. There's a representation going on. He's a good representation of the, the people because he is one of us. Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. There's something about this merciful high priest that has to be human. Uh, Later down in verse 18, it says, Since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. God God can't sin. Jesus couldn't sin. But Jesus was tempted with sin. We're going to look at that in another verse here in a minute. Jesus was tempted with it. And so being a person who came down here and lived in our world and ate our food and wore our clothes and went through the kinds of experiences that humans did, including temptation and suffering, Jesus is able to be merciful toward us. You know, we can't look at God and say, well, you don't understand. You're not one of me, one of us. God can say, I I, I sent my son. My son came down. There's one of you. I get it. I understand, right? There's a mercifulness that can go on because of the incarnation. So to start with, The high priest Jesus is one of us. Uh, Salvation is an inside job, one of my friends likes to say. Job from the inside, right? God came down as one of us, and then salvation comes through a human. That's beautiful. Look at uh, chapter 4 now, verse 14. 4 verse 14. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let's just stop there. Uh, In the Old Testament, the high priest is just called the high priest. There's no time in the Bible that the word great high priest is used except Hebrews. Okay, that That isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. We just have high priests. The author of Hebrews here is stacking adjectives on he's the high priest, but he's not just the high priest. He's the great high priest. Jesus is the best. Jesus is the best one we're ever going to have. We have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That passing through the heavens is kind of important. Uh, If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were here, I I spoke about the idea that when the priests went into the temple of God, they were, it was like the temple of God was a microcosm of, of, of heaven. God has a heavenly court. The priests in the temple worship God, but it's like they're standing before the throne of God up in heaven. We talked about that. They bring their sacred worship there. They, they pray before his throne and it's like they're standing in heaven. It's like the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. Okay, Now, in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament, there was a passing through thing that would happen. 
Every year, the priest would go one day of the year through a special curtain into the back of the tabernacle where no one was allowed to go except the one priest once a year. He would pass through into that room to make an offering for the sins of the people. It's just a room. It's just on earth. But it's symbolizing something bigger, something up in heaven. It says here that Jesus is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What are we talking about here? We are talking about the the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. After Jesus died on the cross and rose again, where did Jesus go? Jesus passed through the heavens up into the presence of God. You want to talk about a good high priest? We don't just have a high priest who went into a room somewhere here on earth. We have a high priest who went through the heavens and is now there in the presence of God for us. That's powerful, right? We have a man on our team who's like us, who's up there. I love it. Uh, So since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Uh, This is the point where we need to remind why the book of Hebrews is being written. Uh, The the Hebrew Christians at this time were going through some persecution. There was pressure coming from the world around them to pull back on their declaration of Jesus. Hebrew Christians at that time, they, were, they would confess, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Messiah, we follow Jesus, right? And persecution was coming because the world around them didn't like Jesus. Jewish community around them didn't like Jesus. There was persecution coming and the tendency was to pull back and say, hey listen, I'll just pull short of saying I'm a Christian, I'll just say I'm a Jew. You know, we'll just embrace Judaism instead of Jesus. We'll go back a little bit. Author here says, since we have this great high priest, well, let's not, let's not go back on our confession of Jesus. Let's hold on to it. Let's go forward with it, right? Keep going because we have the best high priest ever. Going back to Judaism or something else doesn't make any sense. Look at verse 15. Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. We haven't even got to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus yet. We're just talking about sympathy. I really like it. The priest in the Old Testament who stood at the door of the tabernacle understood human weakness. Why? Because as as the writer will say later, he is clothed in weakness himself. He's a human. He gets it. Remember Aaron at the door of the tabernacle. You know, somebody can come in and confess to Aaron that they struggle with worshiping idols. It's a temptation for them. Aaron can't say he doesn't know about that because Aaron led the whole nation into worshiping idols, right? Aaron gets it. Aaron's clothed with weakness. There's a weakness there, a tendency to head in a bad direction. Now, Jesus isn't like that. Jesus did never head in a bad direction. But Jesus can sympathize because he has been tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. We know like three or four times when Jesus was tempted. There's sort of uh, two or three official temptations of Jesus in the New Testament, right? There's the one after his baptism where the devil gives him the three temptations. They're kind of weird temptations, you know, make this rock into bread, jump off the temple, uh, worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. But for Jesus, those were strong things, right? Maybe temptations that bigger than we even understand going on there. He said no, but he was tempted. Temptation involves meeting legitimate human desires through disobedient means. Do you realize that? The things that Jesus was tempted with, like having a meal and having, having God protect you, are natural sort of normal things that Jesus would have wanted. It's okay to want those things, but Satan's asking him to do it in a disobedient way. Break ranks with God. Get it your own way. Right? Temptation is like that. What's the temptation that the Hebrew Christians are being tempted with? Temptation to pull back from Jesus to embrace their own safety. A temptation to kind of give up a little bit on Jesus. To not finish their race well. Jesus understood that temptation. 
Because he came to die on the cross to bring us to God, and Satan puts the temptation in front of him like, hey, you don't need to do that. You don't need to go out all that trouble. Just bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms right here, right now. You know, shortcut the cross. You don't need to finish the race. Just, just shortcut. Probably a strong temptation for Jesus at that point. Jesus didn't follow it. But Jesus knows what it's like to feel weak. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus can sympathize. You ever go to pray before the Father and feel like you can't talk to him about real stuff? You know, can't tell you how I really feel, how strong the temptation was this morning or whatever. You know, you can go and do that. Father, I feel weak right now. I feel weak in X, Y, and Z areas. Help me. (laughs) And you're praying to somebody who sympathizes because he gets it. He's been here. He's walked in your shoes, like they say, right? So tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. The word there is a confidence. Not like cockiness, but like with a confidence that we have a listening ear at God's throne. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We are people who need mercy. We are people who need grace. We need kindness because we're weak, because we are tempted. And we find that there with him. Why? Because he came here and was one of us. It's beautiful. The sympathy of the human high priest, the Lord Jesus. So chapter two, he had to be like us. Chapter four, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now turn to chapter six. Chapter six has some scary things in it. There's a very uh, strong warning against turning away from the Lord Jesus. But for those who struggle with the warning, I always want to point them to the end of the chapter because the chapter ends with such, with such strong comfort for the Christian uh, that it really, I, I think, balances things out rather well. So at Hebrews chapter 6, we are going to look at verse 19. The author of the, the passage is talking about hope. What's hope? Hope for the Christian is confident expectation. It's the, it's the trust in God that God will do what he said he would do. Okay? As Christians, the hope that we have is that God will come back, he will right the wrongs, he will bring the new world, he will bring us into his eternal kingdom. That's all we have. That's what we're hanging on to. Right? When the world is falling apart and everything's crazy and it's getting worse, and there's sickness and death and curse and sin, and Satan's activity, we as Christians have hope that things are going to end well. Look at verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. How many have needed an anchor for their soul this week? Put up my hand. Okay. Why do I do that? You're putting up both hands. I love that. I need an anchor for my soul. What does an anchor do? An anchor holds things steady and firm, rock solid, not moving when everything's swirling around in a sea of crazy. Right? We're like little boats on the water, you guys. Circumstances blow in, out of left field, never saw that coming, you know? And there's the political stuff and the sick stuff and all the the bad things happening in the world. My soul gets worked up real quick. And you can live in a state of anxiety. You can live in a state of fear. You can live in a state of, 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 of dread and of tension, right? I need something to anchor me. The author of Hebrews says that what we have to anchor us is our hope, our confident expectation of what God is going to do. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, sure and steadfast. God will come and fix things. I trust him. Now look at the next phrase. 
We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It, the anchor, enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now we've changed metaphors from a metaphor of an anchor holding a ship steady to a priest going into the inner room in the temple. We've seen this image already before. Jesus passed through the heavens into God's presence, right? We have an anchor that enters into the inner room in the temple with God. Now the anchor is in there. The one who I am tied to is there. Look at verse 20. Jesus has entered there on our behalf. Oh my goodness. Now the anchor is not just a hope or a concept. The anchor is a person. You see how I did that? The anchor is a person. Jesus is the one who brings the hope. Jesus is the one who will bring us into God's eternal kingdom. Jesus is the one who will fulfill the promises that God has made to us. Where is Jesus? Jesus has passed through the curtain into the inner presence of God. He sits there as my anchor. It says, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. You know what a forerunner is? Somebody who runs in front of somebody else. Back in the day, they used to have the kings would come in on a chariot or something like that, and they would have men who would run ahead of the chariot, calling all the people to get out of the way and bow down because the king is coming through. The word forerunner means somebody who comes first. If somebody comes first, if we have a term about somebody coming first, what is, what is implied in there? That there's somebody coming second, third, fourth, and last. Jesus is the forerunner for the human race into the presence of God. What, what's happening after that? If Jesus has gone in, there's an indication that some other people are going in. Us. Jesus has anchored himself in the presence of God as man number one for me. Where am I going? Eventually, the anchor's going to reel me right in there where he is, next to God's throne. I don't know what to do with that, you guys, because I don't belong there. Right? I'm not supposed to be in there. No one's supposed to be in there. Jesus can be there, maybe. Jesus is man number one. Or man number two, three, and all the rest of us. I love it. So when our world is turned upside down, we have an anchor. Where's the anchor? Very best possible place in the universe, right next to the presence of God. Jesus is the forerunner for us. And it says, because he has become a high priest forever, etc. Okay, so he's our anchor. He's our forerunner. He is my high priest. All right, let's look at chapter 7. Chapter 7. So we have Jesus had to be like us. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus is our anchor and our forerunner. Now look at chapter 7, verse 23. It says, Now many have become Levitical priests, since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. What does that mean? I did a little study and I found out that from the time of Aaron, the first high priest, up until the time of Jesus, there were something like 83 high priests. You know, 83 men who served in that role for hundreds of years, a thousand years or something like that of high priests. Why did they have so many? Because they keep dying, right? People get old, people die, and you have to replace his son, his grandson, whatever down the line has to go and fulfill that role as a high priest. They're good men, sort of. For a time, but then they wear out, and they get old, and they get sick, and they die, and now we have to get another one. Okay, So there were many high priests, and they are prevented by death from remaining in office. Look at verse 24. This is one of my favorite things about Jesus. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is the last high priest. We don't need another one. Jesus died, did that, check, came back from the dead, never to die again. 
Uh, Do you realize that Jesus lives as a man with skin on like you and me in the heavens? That body that he came out of the tomb with, he still got it. You know, 2,000 years later. Standing there in the presence of God, a human on my side, an undying immortal human forever on my side before God. What does that say about my position with the Father? I like to say it like this. God really likes his son. And as long as Jesus and God are good, I'm good too, because I'm with Jesus. So how long is God good with Jesus? Evidently forever, because Jesus isn't dying and Jesus isn't going anywhere. Talk about security. Talk about the security of the believer, like I'm okay with God because him, because he's there. Hey, never forget that, by the way. The fact that you're okay with God has absolutely nothing to do with you. It's to do with someone who God really likes. (laughs) You know, you read the passages, Jesus comes out of the water as baptism and God shouts down from heaven, this is my son, I love him very much. Said the same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son whom I love. God is in love with his son, you guys. So if you're in with the son, boy, you're in a good spot. Okay, so verse 24, uh, because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, therefore, because of this, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus saves us completely, not part way, not little bit, not until he dies and we have to find another high priest. Jesus is able to save completely because he lives forever. He saves those who come to God through him. Interesting. We as Christians are the people who come to God through Jesus, right? We don't come on our own merits. We don't come through some kind of a, another human or some kind of a religion or a system. We come to God through Jesus. He's our way in. He's our ticket. He's our card in, in the door. Uh, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. That intercede is an old-fashioned word. It means to pray, to pray in the stead of someone else. Hey, the priests in the Old Testament had a ministry of prayer. They would pray for the nation, right? They would pray for the people. The poor people would come to the door and they'd confess their sins and the priest would go and pray before God for the people. Jesus prays for the people. You ever think about that? I don't think about that much. When I think about prayer, I think, oh, I need to pray more for other people and people need to pray more for me or whatever. Do you ever think about that Jesus prays for you? Like what's Jesus doing up there all this time in the presence of God? Evidently, he's talking to the Father about us. That's amazing. Put that together with the sympathetic high priest who gets it because he's been here. That's really powerful. You ever have someone try to pray for you who really doesn't know your situation? You know, they can offer some general words to the Lord. and It's kind of comforting, but it's not so great, you know. Jesus is a person who came here and lived in a body with skin on like you, was tempted, felt weakness, sickness, and pain just like you do, and he's up there talking to the Father about you and your condition right now. That's comforting. That's really comforting. And more than that, he has his spirit living inside your body. He knows what's going on in your head. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows how you feel. He knows your weakness. And he talks to the Father about you. Jesus is able to, God, uh, Jesus rather, is able to save us completely because he is there praying for us. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross saved us once for all. Jesus' ministry before the Father keeps us saved. Keeps us safe. We have an enemy who has access at times to the presence of God. Satan can come in there. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He comes in there and throws the charges before God. You know, look what Dave did today. Look what Dave thought today. Look what Dave said today. Here's a list. Big, black, dark list. Dripping with evil. You know, that's what's going on with your son today. How dare you keep him? Jesus is my high priest. Jesus can stand up and show his hands. 
to the Father, and Satan has to go away because it's paid for. Jesus is there praying for me. He's on my side. He's got my back. He's on my team. Jesus keeps me saved by his ministry there for me. Let's look at chapter 9. We've got two more to do. So Jesus is like us. Jesus sympathizes. Jesus is our forerunner. Jesus is the best eternal priest. Chapter 9, verse 12. Let's read verse 11 to get the context. It says, But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. (laughs) Before we were talking about the sympathy of the high priest and the fact that he's there praying for us, that's what the priests would do. Now we have to talk about the offering of the high priest. The priest offers something. Back in chapter 8 it says, hey, all the priests had an offering to give. This one needs an offering too. Jesus needs to offer something. The offering that we're talking about is called the sin offering that was offered one time a year in the tabernacle on what was called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a national for Israel day of fasting and prayer about sin. It was a day of focusing on the sin problem of the nation. People have been sinning all year. And they can come to the tabernacle and give these little offerings for sin, but there needs to be sort of one big one once a year to take care of all the stuff they forgot and everything that's been done. So it'd be a special day, a ceremony all day long. The high priest, the special representative man, would be there in his uniform with the names of the tribes on him and the different colored stones representing the people, right? And he'd, he would take a bull or a goat or a lamb, depending on which offering they were doing, They would confess the sins of the entire nation over the head of that animal, cut the throat, drain the blood out into a bowl, burn that animal on the altar or outside the camp, depending on which offering it was. And the priest then would take that bowl of this blood, this offering blood, and he would go into the first room of the tabernacle where they have the table of bread representing the nation and the lamp representing light and they've got this altar of incense going. It's representing the prayers of God's people, right? Making a nice smell before God, representing prayer. And very carefully, probably with a lot of fear, the priest would open that last curtain and go in that last room. He hasn't been in there since last year because you're not allowed to. you get killed if you do. God will kill you. Inside that room, there's nothing except a box, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the box is God's law, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, by the way, that the people have been breaking all year long. God's holy standard. On the lid of the box are angels. We call them cherubim. Angels that are bent over worshiping God. And in between the cherubim is God's glowing presence. In the Old Testament, the people could actually see it. It would have been kind of frightening for the priest to get that close. It's like we're walking up to God's throne. And the angels represented there worshiping God. And the priest goes in, bent over in worship with the sacred blood. And very carefully, he splashes that blood on the top of the box. The mercy seat called the place where atonement is made the place where we make it right and god looked at that as i will i will forgive i will cover i will allow the nation to be cleansed for another year when the priest has done that he turns around and he walks back outside people breathe a sigh of relief forgiven for another year we can move forward praise the lord <laughs> jesus has to have something to offer as well there is an altar on a little hill outside of Jerusalem, called Golgotha, or Calvary as we know it. Jesus went up on the cross and died like a lamb for the sins of all the people of all time, all over the world. 
And in God's mind, the picture goes that Jesus brings his own sacred blood in before the presence of the Father and pours it before the Father. Okay, that didn't literally happen, but that's the picture. Right? It's a beautiful picture. Jesus didn't just offer some lamb as a priest. Jesus offered himself. The high priest went on the altar and offered himself as the spotless, sinless lamb that the people need. Um, it says he entered the most holy place once for all time. Does Jesus' offering need to be repeated? No. Later in the book of Hebrews, it says he only needed to do it once because it was so good. You know, mic drop. We're done. Offer that one offering and it's, and it's so good, we will just stop offerings. This is why we don't do offerings in church. This is why we, 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 we've stopped with the temple thing. Uh, it says eternal redemption for us. Not just redemption for a short time. Not just redemption for another year. Eternal redemption. This again is why we are secure. This is why we come and eat the bread and drink the cup and remember what Jesus did. We point back to it. We're still living in the good of it 2,000 years later. Looking back on remembering the one offering. It's beautiful. So Jesus offered himself as a high priest. Now turn over to the last one, chapter 10, verse 10. We're going to read 10 through 14. It says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. It's kind of repeating the same idea, but it's saying that we have been made holy by the offering of Jesus. Hey, the offerings in the Old Testament served to cleanse the people so that they could have a relationship with God. Sin is seen as a defilement, as a dirt, as, as, as a smear on humanity. And the offering of the sacred blood was taken by God as cleansing so the people could relate to God freely for another year. Jesus has offered his own body and his own blood and has sanctified us once for all time. We are now considered God's holy people going forward. People who can relate to God without the hiccup of having to go back and make sure there's another offering done. Remember when uh, Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. God did that. They said that veil was, you know, as thick as a man's hand. It's pretty thick cloth, right? Teams of horses couldn't pull it apart. God tore it apart from top to the bottom when Jesus cried out on the cross. What is God saying? There's no need for separation anymore. The door has been opened through the body of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. The sin stain has been wiped away completely. That's the provision we have through Jesus. Jesus offered himself, having obtained eternal uh, um, redemption and sanctification for us. Now look at verse 11. We'll read this. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. Hey, the priests in the Old Testament did their job, and it kind of worked, kind of for a while, but it can never take away sin permanently, right? But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. We talked about this two weeks ago. Jesus did his offering, and then where did he go? Sat down in the presence of God. He sits because the work is done. Priest had to stand. Jesus is sitting. Verse 13, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Okay. Jesus is waiting now for the time for the Father to say, okay, son of mine, go back and claim what's yours. Claim your inheritance. Claim the world. Go get him for me. Uh, it's the second coming of Christ that's being spoken about there. We have a wonderful high priest. I, I hope it's been encouraging to you to look at this. What we're going to do briefly right now is look at the way the book of Hebrews applies this idea. So turn down the page or look down the page to chapter 10, verse 19. Jesus is our wonderful, beautiful, powerful, best high priest ever. Now what? 
Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, as Jeremy said, what's it there for, right? Since we have boldness, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to do that, right? We can sit here this morning confident that God cares, confident that he understands, confident that our sin's been taken care of. Uh, that we can enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us, he says, a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So Jesus' own body on the cross is like the doorway into God's house. Since we have that, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so since the door has been opened and Jesus stands in the door welcoming us in, since we have that, verse verse 22, let us. Uh, There are three let us's that are coming here. These are the let us do this. Since Jesus has done this for us, one, two, three, here's what we shall do. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. When I sin, drawing near to God is the last thing I feel like I can do. I know, you have, I know you empathize and you sympathize, you understand that, right? When we sin, we mess up. God seems so far away. I can't talk to him right now. I'm going to have to wait till I pray a little longer, grovel a little more, live a little better life for a while, and then I'll go and talk to God. The writer of Hebrews says, because we have the great high priest who has opened the door by his own body and blood, let's just get in there. Let's draw near. Let's get close. We have a position that is right next to the Father's throne, right next to the Father's heart where Jesus sits. You can go there with him today. Sin's been taken care of. Let us draw near. Let us not have fear. Let's have confidence to go there with him. Second one, verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Let us hold on to our confession. We live in a, in, a, in a time right now where Christian confession is allowed, officially. We can claim Jesus is Lord. He's my Savior and my Messiah. I worship him. That's even respected in some places. You go to church, that's good. Jesus, that's good. That's cool, you know. Uh, our world around us and our culture will say, and so is everything else, you know, all the other religions and things. But that's cool for now. There will come a time, though, where we will be pushed and persecuted probably for the confession that we make. The world kind of tends to head in that direction. We know that the book of Revelation tells the story of the end of humanity with a very dark system where there's an evil empire that takes over and confession of Christ is not allowed. We're heading in that direction. People in the book of Hebrews had to hold on to their confession in a hard time. Is it hard for you to hold on to your confession? Maybe at work, maybe people mock the Jesus you love or something like that. Hey, based on the fact that we have this beautiful high priest who is standing there welcoming us into the presence of God, let's hang on to our confession. I want to echo the words of the Apostle Peter back in the Gospels where someone's saying, hey, you can go away, you can leave Jesus. And Peter's like, where else would I go? You know, who else have we got that's so great? I'm staying with Jesus. Thank you. (laughs) You know, I'm going to hang on to my confession. I'll keep saying it. Jesus is Lord and I worship him. He's the only way. So hang on to our confession. And then lastly, let us, verse 24, watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. A little bit longer one here. Watch out for one another. Uh, I tend to be a very selfish person. You know who I watch out for? Me. And so do you. 
That's kind of our culture, our society. We look out for number one. Christian community, the church that Jesus created by his body and blood, is a community where we are to watch out for each other. Why do we need to watch out for each other? You know, because we all struggle with sin. We all need sympathy. We all need prayer. We all need encouragement. How many have needed encouragement this week? I could put up both hands, right? And so could you. Where do you get the encouragement from other than the Word of God? Other people, other Christians, right? He says, let us watch out for one another, not neglecting to gather together. He says, some are in the habit of doing that. In our our world today with the sickness thing going around, there can be a tendency to say, well, I I don't need the body. I'll just go off by myself. You know, it's kind of of legitimized maybe by the, the sickness thing or whatever. We do need each other though, don't we? Whether it's coming here in person or watching on on online or whatever, calling people who need to talk to you and you need to talk to them. Those are all things we should be doing, right? Encouraging each other to keep going because we're weak. And he says, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? Usually in scripture, when he talks about the day. He's talking about the day of Christ. When Jesus will come back. As the time draws near, as the age wraps up, as the coming of Jesus gets closer and closer and closer, guess what? I need more encouraging. Because the age is going to get darker, the air is going to get heavier, it's going to get harder, right? To live for Christ. So encouragement should be on the rise instead of on the decline. Based on who we have, based on the open door into God's presence, let's keep encouraging each other to walk forward. um, Because we need it so much. All right, draw near, hang on, and watch out and encourage each other. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are so thankful to you for what you have done through Jesus. We take it for granted, Father. We come in here and we sing to you and we read your word and we take communion and we forget the great cost that it took to open the door for us. Uh, Father, let us never do that. Let us never forget that forgiveness and the open door cost you greatly. You were the one who took the cost. We're thankful to you, Father, that we didn't have to pay, because if that were the case, we'd never be able to finish paying. We'd pay eternally. But you paid once and for all, and it was good enough. Father, thank you for the beautiful pictures from the Old Testament that we can relate to. Um, I just pray that we will take advantage of our high priest this week. pray our hearts will be encouraged, and I pray we will encourage each other. In Jesus' name.